Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On this edition of Primetime Politics, we're going to need to continue to challenge China on human rights. Canada has a new ambassador to China, but do we have a new China policy? The travel industry really played no more of a significant threat than uh, uh, other industries within our community. A medical assessment says Canada's vaccine mandates for international travelers was ineffective and unnecessary, just as the government is set to let the mandates expire. And our journalists will be in to weigh in on Pierre Poilievre's first week in Parliament as leader of the official opposition. But we start with the announcement of a new Canadian ambassador to China, Jennifer May. She is a veteran career diplomat who speaks five languages, including Mandarin. She was previously ambassador to Brazil, and she has been posted to Hong Kong and Beijing. Her appointment comes almost a year after the release by China of two Canadians, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, falsely imprisoned as alleged spies. Prime Minister Trudeau made the announcement on Friday, and he was asked about Ambassador May's appointment later when he was hosting a visit to Ottawa by the President of South Korea. China is certainly a uh, real uh, challenging actor in the region. There are areas in which uh, we're going to have to figure out how to work together, like on climate change. There are areas in which we're going to be directly competitive uh, in many uh, economic and trade issues. But there are areas in which we're going to need to continue to challenge China on human rights, uh, on uh, respect for the international rules-based order, uh, and doing that with a nuanced approach uh, that is looking out for the interests of Canadians, the interests of citizens across our democracies, is essential. I think for too long, China and other autocracies have uh, been able to uh, play off uh, neighbours and friends against each other. Joining me now to discuss the appointment of Jennifer May as Canada's new ambassador to China and what it might mean for Canada-China relations is Guy Saint-Jacques. Monsieur Saint-Jacques is a former Canadian ambassador to Beijing. Monsieur Saint-Jacques, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Now, first of all, your response to the appointment of Jennifer May, a career diplomat to Beijing, the two previous ambassadors appointed by Prime Minister Trudeau, Dominic Barton, and before him, John McCallum, they had been political appointees. What do you make of this appointment? Well, I think it's the, the right choice uh, at the right time. I know that uh, Mr. Trudeau and Mrs. Jolie uh, had looked for uh, another political appointee. Uh, I know that they were hoping to get a woman with the right set of uh, competencies, but uh, they probably came to the conclusion sometime in late spring that they would be better served at this stage with uh, a career diplomat. And among uh, female diplomats uh, in Global Affairs Canada, we we had uh, a group or, or of uh, four or five women uh, that uh, could uh, meet the, uh, the criteria, but I think that Jennifer May was the, the most uh, qualified. When you look at her uh, work experience, she has served in China previously, she speaks Mandarin, and she has served uh, in Thailand where she did uh, a trade work. She has worked uh, in Vienna, in uh, Germany, mm -hmm. uh, in Hong Kong, and her last appointment was as uh, ambassador to Brazil, which is uh, a very important function. So I, I think that she has well-rounded experience, 
Uh, she knows the Chinese, she knows the system, how the government works, how the Communist Party of China work, and I think that uh, uh, although she will be faced with uh, a difficult task uh, at this stage of the relationship, I think it's uh, she is a very good choice. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's explore that. Um, do you think her appointment in any way signifies a change in approach uh, and, and in the way Canada is going to be approaching China? Well, I, I would hope that, uh, <clears throat> you know, the that the prime minister realized that he has some very talented and competent people in the foreign service. And uh, I would argue that uh, the, the government in Canada are uh, better served by appointing people who know uh, the country where they are assigned uh, and who can interpret developments for Ottawa uh, and help Ottawa to uh, establish its uh, priorities, establish its, uh, its policies. Uh, there are uh, some regions in the world where uh, it's more appropriate. In my view, it's uh, essential to, uh, to assign uh, career diplomats. Of course, in a place like uh, Washington or London or Paris, we have had a number of political appointees uh, in the past, and I think some of them have done a good job. But when you look at diplomacy, uh, you know, it can be uh, a difficult job, especially in modern time as things are evolving mm. very rapidly uh, but the also the what uh, a career diplomat can bring is uh, the capacity the ability to network and and that's what i think what mrs uh, may will do when she arrives in beijing okay well let's look at that you mentioned that this is a difficult job it's not an easy job by any description in beijing the new ambassador Ms. may has told the toronto star already that she will raise human rights issues with china like the treatment of the uyghur Muslim minority and the crackdown in Hong Kong. The Prime Minister said the same thing in his, in his press release announcing her, saying that he counts on her to raise human rights issues. But the ambassador says she also wants to, quote, repair the Canada-China relationship. Your reaction? Can you do both of those? Well, I think it, it, that's why I say uh, she is faced with a, a very challenging uh, and difficult uh, task. And uh, it won't be easy for her when I look at how uh, Beijing operates now, uh, access has become a lot more difficult. To give you an example, the uh, American ambassador, who is, of course, uh, a very senior guy, uh, Nicola Burns, uh, it's difficult for him to meet anyone above the level of director general at the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs. And in the case of uh, Canada-China uh, relations, the, the Chinese uh, ambassador in Ottawa, Tongpi, who keeps uh, repeating that Canada should learn the lessons from the Meng Wanzhou uh, uh, crisis. Uh, and it's clear that they consider us uh, like a, a junior partner. Uh, furthermore, China conducts a, a foreign policy that is a lot more aggressive in your face. Uh, they don't listen well. So in, in this regard, I think that uh, uh, Mrs. May will want also to, uh, to work with uh, other ambassadors, especially Western ambassadors in Beijing, mm -hmm. to try to develop common approaches to problems that we are all facing in the relationship with China and try to come up with uh, uh, you know, a, a common position okay. and maybe make uh, joint demarches. Which raises the big question. The Trudeau government had been told by China hands for a long time and it had been musing itself about bringing out a, quote, new China policy. Uh, we're hearing instead that this fall we may hear something just about a recalibration of Indo-Pacific relations. What do you make of what you're hearing? Uh, you're close to the diplomatic world. What, are we likely to see any change in our approach to China? Has the, have those ideas about rethinking our relationship just gone out the window? <clears throat> well, I think the, uh, there's still a debate about uh, 
how firm should we be with China and uh, how tough should we be. On this, I have uh, argued uh, right from the start of the uh, Mang Wanzhou crisis that the, the only language that China understands is uh, firmness. And we have learned a lot on China in the last few years, the, uh, how Xi Jinping has increased uh, controls uh, on uh, freedom of speech, uh, religious freedom, uh, how he has cracked down on democracy in Hong Kong, how uh, the situation is difficult in Tibet and, and Xinjiang. And for all those reasons, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to uh, hope to get back to where we were before uh, the latest crisis. On the other hand, uh, if uh, I think that Canada is, uh, is well-placed, you know, uh, uh, Canada is, is well-liked for all the development assistance that was uh, carried out uh, over a period of 30 years, the uh, cooperation stopped in mm -hmm. uh, 2013. We sent over a billion dollars. We helped China to develop its uh, dairy industry. We helped China to create its uh, uh, Ministry of Environment. And this is an area, uh, an area environment where Canada is well perceived, where I hope that China will understand that we, we should develop collaboration okay. on that. The same applies to health and pandemics. So hopefully Mrs. May will be able to build up on that goodwill that still exists in some uh, quarters of the Chinese government and, and try to make progress. And, you know, it will be uh, a long and arduous process, yep. but I am confident okay. she will be able to do it. Well, it sounds very much, and you, you make the point, it sounds as if she has her job cut out for her. Thank you very much, uh, Monsieur Saint-Jacques. The Trudeau government is expected to let its controversial COVID-19 restrictions for international travelers expire next week. Those restrictions include the requirement to be double vaccinated and the possibility of random testing and the requirement to use the ArriveCan app to enter Canada. Canada's hard-hit tourism industry has been calling for the measures to be lifted for months, and today the industry released a medical assessment by a number of infectious disease experts who say that the border measures were of very little use in stopping the spread of the virus. Travelling in an aircraft is probably one of the safest things you can do. Uh, one study estimated the risk to be 1 in 1.7 million being infected during air travel. Another study suggested that we see secondary cases in 0.5 to 1% of cases. That's lower than in many of our day-to-day -day activities that we do, like visiting a restaurant, going to the theater, or going to a gym. And as such, it remains a relatively rare or very rare occurrence when you look at the bigger picture. Joining me now is Dr. Zane Chagla. He's an associate professor at McMaster University. He's also the co-director of infection control at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. Dr. Chagla, thanks for joining us. No problem. Um, okay, in a nutshell, because you, you've sent this message out there before, but with this further review of the literature, what are your conclusions uh, basically about the efficacy, the efficiency of vaccine mandates for international travelers? So, you know, there, there's a few things here. Number one is, you know, did vaccine and, uh, and other mandates at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, make a difference in terms of COVID transmission? Yes, absolutely. You know, in, in that context, COVID came into Canada uh, from international. But I think, you know, as we, we entered the Omicron era, as we knew, you know, vaccine efficacy was significantly hit, especially two doses of vaccine. Um, 
much of the usefulness of these measures really started falling off. You know, vaccinated travelers could effectively transmit COVID uh, to their communities. And in fact, you know, our initial Omicron response, many of those travelers who brought Omicron into Canada were vaccinated. Um, you know, the, the random testing, I think, was uh, useful initially to take a look at variants and, and uh, community transmission. But in the context, you know, in our, in our communities currently, testing isn't really that available other than rapid tests. You know, testing border uh, uh, entering individuals may not uh, pick up people that are actively infectious, may pick up people that were infectious weeks and months ago. Um, and we've gotten much better technology in terms of monitoring for variants of concern, like wastewater, like sequencing in our communities. And so, you know, I think in the burden of all of this, we see that, you know, these measures, particularly in the Omicron era, really aren't paying any dividends. They're inconveniencing travelers. There's better ways to invest that time in human resource and financial resource. Um, and I think, you know, again, the travel and tourism industry is one of the few industries that's still left behind while the rest of society is able to open and, and operate freely without any restrictions. So, you know, again, it's a, it's important that we make sure that this industry has the benefit of, of following the science like many other industries in society. Okay, so you're arguing that the, uh, the double vaccination or the full vaccination requirement and testing should be eliminated. But when you mentioned uh, random testing, some medical experts have said that random testing at the borders is important and shouldn't be scrapped uh, because we could be confronted by a more virulent and more dangerous variant. And there's a need for some sort of monitoring system to be in place. Uh, and that random testing is something you shouldn't scrap because it would could be very onerous to try and set it up again if we are faced with a new variant that's particularly dangerous. What do you make of that argument? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, that is one of the, the reasons why I think uh, the federal government has kept this along uh, in, in a, a position to try to get more data and then be, uh, be open about it. You know, I think, again, we have to think back to what happened when Omicron first uh, arrived from southern Africa. It came into Canada. By the time we figured it out and sequenced travelers and figured out they had Omicron, it was spreading in Canada. In fact, we probably missed the spread by a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, same with the United States, you know, again, with testing, um, you know, they found cases, but there was community transmission of Omicron in the United States. And I think that really talks about this virus. By the time you figure out a new variant is emerging, it's already in your community. So, uh, so, and, so uh, border, and, so border random testing, you say, is not really is not effective. The the literature has shown that it's not an effective as a barrier. No, exactly, and yeah. especially as we're testing only random individuals. You know, there's lots of individuals coming through. It doesn't, you know, if I develop symptoms yeah. the day after I uh, I. Uh, come in through the border, I can't really test in my community. Uh, and so, you know, again, there's a lot of uh, holes in the Swiss cheese here in terms of preventing variants. There's lots of ways we can leverage current technology, though, to fill that role, right? You know, wastewater testing is a, a great advance, and it can be adapted to look for new variants of concern. It can actually be adapted to look for new pathogens and emerging mm -hmm. infections. And so it is a, a great technology that we could develop even further to do passive surveillance okay. uh, to look for uh, transmission. And similarly, the people that do need PCR testing in our communities, you know, we can test them still, we can sequence them still, we can share that data globally. I can look up exactly what variants are circulating in the United States on the CDC website, you know, and similarly as Canada, we should probably be, you know, sequencing in our communities more to 
give the rest of the world uh, uh, you know that that information this is going to be a global sharing network it's not okay. necessarily going to be just at the border here's a question when the majority of these measures for international travelers were brought in they were rapidly imposed uh, I remember there was a big pressure around the Delta variant uh, and certain countries uh, and then you mentioned the Omicron variants uh, certain politicians were calling for them they were pressuring the federal government and I, I remember on the record Doug Ford Jason Kenney were definitely pressing the government to bring them in at airports did these airport measures, uh, according to the literature, did they ever make sense? You know, I think Delta was a, an interesting period because of the fact that vaccine efficacy was much higher. And so you theoretically, like we had in, in many communities, you know, proof of vaccination as a means to do higher risk activities um, could have worked. Now, I, I would say even on a flight, look, you had kids that couldn't be vaccinated, you had people with medical exemptions, you had probably people with waning vaccine efficacy. Uh, and so it wasn't as perfect as I, I, it could have been, but you know, there probably was benefits back in the Delta era. Um, I think with Omicron, things really did okay. change though. And, and that really should have been recognized in, in that context. Okay, last question, because we are running out of time. I want to ask you one thing though, uh, masking. Uh, this is not going to be addressed uh, from what we've been told by the uh, federal government decision. Should masking show, still be mandatory on planes? I think we need to align with the rest of society. And uh, and masking you know, is, is optional in the rest of society. We can go into incredibly high risk settings like a senator's game without a mask. Uh, you know, an airplane is a well-ventilated, well-filtered space where people have to take their masks down temporarily to eat and drink. You know, I think the, the, the need for masking, you know, a mandatory masking on planes probably has outlived its effectiveness, particularly in the context of immunization and immunity. Um, and if the federal government doesn't move on this now, there probably does need to be transparency in terms of when. Uh, you know, there isn't a great indicator to say masks should stop. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, recognizing that, you know, the, that masks are not going to be a permanent intervention on flights. So, you know, if it's not today, then when is it going to be? And, and that really has to be put out transparently. Last question in 20 seconds. A lot of this is, man, I mean, so many of the presentations uh, that you've made and your colleagues have made are also always referencing the high level of vaccination and immunity in the Canadian population. Uh, people are not not that many people are going to get their booster doses. If you look at the percentage, for example, of fourth doses, could this all be thrown out the window? And should we have to revisit all of this if people let their immunity wane? You know, again, we, we have natural immunity in the population too, which is playing a role. 60, 70% of Canadians have had COVID. Um, you know, boosters are great for high-risk individuals and high-risk individuals that are traveling should be getting their booster shots particularly. Um, but I think we are at a point now where the disease is fundamentally different amongst vaccinated individuals and immune individuals through infection. And, and uh, we have to respect that as we move forward. Okay, Dr. Chagler, thank you very much for taking the time. No problem. All the best. Joining me now are two members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Tonda McCharles is a national political reporter for the Toronto Star and Mia Rabson is a reporter with the Canadian Press. Both of you, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Okay, let's start with, I mean, obviously it was the first week back of Parliament and it was the first uh, face-off between Pierre Polyeva as the leader of the official opposition and the Prime Minister and his government. Um, I'll start with you, Mia. What did you make of it all and how it unfolded? 
Well, maybe there was just too much excitement in the lead up to this sort of big showdown between the two of them. But to be honest, I found it a little bit boring. There was nothing exciting. There were no fireworks. I mean, Polyev had his one-liners. He's known for for being good with the zingers, and he he pulled out a couple of them. But for the most part, it was just a par for the course question period. What I do find interesting was a he brought all of the questions, whether it was with Trudeau on Thursday or right from the, out of the gates on Tuesday. He seemed to always start in French, which is to me sending some kind of signal. He's also got that caucus entirely focused on inflation, on yeah. affordability, on the economy. He, uh, he, there was, they, you almost heard nothing from them on anything else this week, even very little on some of their favorite topics of late, like the Arrive Can app or Borders. Yeah. Um, it's, it's clear that that is the message, that's the, the tone that he mm. wants to strike is all about the economy all of the time. That's interesting you should make that point because we were waiting for them to talk about the, uh, yeah, the, the imminent uh, departure of the Rive Can and the, and the vaccine mandates. Not a word of it that day that the, the story broke. Tonda, what did you make of this first week? Well, look, I think that uh, Mr. Poliev had a pretty good week um, insofar as, you know, he was able to keep his focus and his party's focus on, on inflation and the economy. Uh, but I think what we also saw, and this is worth noting, you know, is that we saw a return to the usage of member statements, not for congratulating people and causes around the country, but for political statements to boost and amp up the message. So we, there's a return to that sort of Harper Days tactic in the House to to focus on the message. Um, between Mr. Poliev and Trudeau, look, always around Parliament Hill, on you know, on the days that people expect that it's going to be a big day, it's always anticlimactic. The dust-ups will come. And they'll come, though, on other times when each gets under the other's skin. And that will happen because while they both are, you know, good on their feet in the house, they both have a pretty thin skin sometimes and make mistakes then. So I think we should watch for that. Uh, otherwise, I, I also just want to mention that one of the things I found interesting watching Mr. Polyev in the house a couple of times this week he was shushing hecklers in his back bench saying you know stop stop and this is important when he was grilling Freeland on inflation he wanted to hear the answer and, and then I found him coaching some of his backbenchers on you know replies and retorts to ministers answers so mm -hmm. you know he's uh, very much his own communication strategist and I think uh, you know he's a skilled one at that and so it'll be an interesting dynamic in the weeks ahead okay well there's a quote to retain the dust-ups will come um, let's look mm -hmm. at the other side of the equation the government started off the uh, the sitting with uh, announcing and tabling its first two pieces of legislation were it's uh, what the Prime Minister is calling the affordability package, three three measures, the uh, the boost, the temporary boost to the uh, renter's benefit, the Canada housing benefit, the uh, one time, well, the six month uh, doubling of the GST uh, rebate and the beginnings of the dental plan. Uh, what do you make, uh, Mia, what do you make of how the government is responding on this issue, which will be this fall's issue, and that's affordability? Well, in some ways, it just was surprising at how long it took them to put something on the table. They've been sort of between the criticism on both sides, which is you're not doing enough and don't do anything because it could make inflation worse. Mm. And it did seem to take them quite a while to land on where they were going to, to sit on some of this. Interesting as well that all three of the policies that they used are what the NDP had been pushing them to do, two of them from the NDP Liberal Supply Agreement. Yeah. Uh, so nothing sort of new that just popped up over the summer, but they've just been taking their time trying to figure out what is the best way to respond to give some people that need it the most a little bit of help without driving up inflation didn't stop the critics from saying you're going to just do that you have the conservatives coming up with alternative plans although interestingly they are saying they will support at least the GST yeah. increase there it's not how they would do it but it's a way to do it and they will support it so they also see a little bit of vulnerability if they didn't vote for that oh, okay. uh, from their own Ta Tonda briefly just on the government's response or the government's uh, strategy so far on affordability 
Well, look, they have to do these things. These are key to uh, retaining the NDP's support. Yeah. And the fact is, this government still wants the NDP support uh, through to navigate this minority parliament, not just to put forward and pass progressive measures, but to avoid obstruction in committees. And I was told that very directly, like, they're going to cooperate. They don't care if the NDP wants to claim credit for some of it. They're going to make sure that that deal sticks. Um, for the supply and confidence of the government for the months ahead. And most liberals I talk to kind of see at least a two-year runway before the okay. next election, although the deal allows it to stay in place for three. Okay, well, while we have you on camera, uh, Tonda, you had a chance to speak with Canada's new ambassador. Yeah. You had an article on Jennifer May, the career diplomat who's now been named to Canada's new ambassador to China. Uh, any words of it? She's a career diplomat. Uh, what do you make of her selection? Yeah, so 30-year Foreign Service veteran, um, she is fluent in French, German, and Mandarin, although she says it's rusty. I, I asked her in Mandarin if she speaks Mandarin, and her reply was very swift and, and fluent, and I was impressed by that. Um, she also has experience in Asia, so not just Hong Kong and Beijing, where she was responsible for the human rights monitoring at the embassy, also for the political trade portfolio while she was in Hong Kong. So she's got those under her belt. She's got a picture of what it's like to work under an authoritarian regime because she's just fresh out of Brazil, uh, where Bolsonaro uh, was you know, is an authoritarian leader. And so she takes some lessons to that. But I think the signal for her uh, for from her appointment by this government is to try and put the relations on a professional diplomatic footing as opposed to something that where we think that the the political some ambassador has the political ear of the government um mm -hmm. look the relationship is in the deep freeze it has to get out of it these are baby steps but i don't think i think also the signal we're hearing from both her and the prime minister on friday was they're going to raise human rights. They're not going to be shy about raising it. It's going to be a lot more of a focus for uh, the government. Yeah. So um, they need multilateral support to back them up on that, but that's what they intend to do. Mia, what do you make of it? I mean, it's been a long time that, uh, or recently, the government has been talking about uh, a new approach, a new China policy, and now we're only hearing that it's just going to be some sort of recalibration of a uh, Indo-Pacific policy. Uh, what do you make of uh, this announcement and Canada-China relations as what we should watch for? Well, a lot of people are making a lot of noise about the fact that she is not a political appointment. She's not like, you know, two, two, the first ambassador Trudeau appointed, of course, was one of his own cabinet ministers, John McCallum. Then he put in place Dominic Barton to try and deal with the two Michael situation. Um, and now he's going back to sort of a career diplomat, someone who might be able to take some of the posturing out of it, out of the uh, the relationship. But there's also those who might say this is a signal to China that they don't want someone who's that close to the prime minister in China, that they're not going to put someone like they would in Washington or in Germany or in France, some of this Canada's, Canada's allies. So there are definitely different signals that people are taking from this. Mm -hmm. I think for many people, just having someone in that ambassador's chair is what's important. This relationship has suffered dramatically over the last few years. It definitely needs some kind of reset. It needs to be warmed up <laughs> since it to, to, to go to what Tonda had talked about being it's quite a little bit chilly right now. Deep freeze, uh, so yeah. it's a bit of a chance um, for, for Canada to, to sort of start a little bit fresh, put some fresh eyes with someone who has a lot of experience and knowledge about the region. Okay, well, to both of you, thank you very much. We will watch this one especially uh, with a lot of interest. I want to uh, let you go and thank you very much for uh, taking your time. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. Well, that's it for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Martin Stringer. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend.